I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. In our conversation around childhood education, at least at a national level, usually revolves around or devolves into a sort of generic bifurcation of public versus private. And that's all fine, I suppose, but it's also very bird's eye view. When we really begin to break any topic down into its constituent parts, we can begin to see much more clearly. It's not just public, it's not just private. It's a robust assortment of competing educational methods with varying degrees of efficacy. So what method might work best for your child or hypothetical child? Our two guests this week believe that the method they practice will best equip that child to flourish as an adult. Ray Gern is the founder and CEO of Higher Ground Education. Higher Ground provides Montessori education globally from infant care through K-12, in physical schools, virtual programs, home-based programs, and through its platform to public and private school partners. Dr. Matt Bateman is the Vice President of Pedagogy at Higher Ground Education, providing intellectual guidance on programming across the organization. He was formerly the Director of Curriculum and Pedagogy at Laporte Schools and a visiting professor of psychology at Franklin and Marshall College. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Now, during my research for our conversation, I would mention in passing to friends the word Montessori or Montessori school or Montessori method. And almost to a person, no one was familiar with the name, let alone the teaching methodology. But Maria Montessori's teaching methods have been practiced for over 100 years. And luminaries such as Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia, novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin have all been proponents of her methodology. So for our audience, who is Maria Montessori? What are her methods? And how can these methods be both foreign and ubiquitous, depending on who you talk to? And either one of you can field that. Yeah, I mean, she, Maria Montessori was this luminary. Um, she was the first or one of the first female doctors to be trained in Italy um, in the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, so she did most of her pioneering work in education um, She, she um, between 100 and 20 and 70 years ago. So she kind of worked in the 1900, 1950 range. And she was throughout her whole life a real radical, um, a real radical for education reform, a real genius um, in terms of her methodology and research and scientific thinking. And she created this method basically almost not by accident exactly, but she was working with children, what we would now call children with special needs. They didn't have such a nice phrase for that back then, um, basically insane, what were called children at, at institutes for the insane or orthophrenic institutes. And she had these, this immense success working with these children um, by seeing them in a different way and using different methods and um, seeing them as a need of help and a need of stimulation and a need of education. And when she really took the seeds of the, these ideas, treating children with respect, figuring out how to make ideas accessible to them, figuring out how to help them help themselves and help them become independent, she found that the methods extended and she, um, she became internationally renowned um, for her ability to teach young children really amazing things. Um, so I think the, th the first thing that really made her famous, that kind of put her on the map internationally, is she taught three, four-year-olds how to read and write, which at the time was unprecedented. It was just not tried. It was something that was assumed that you don't even attempt it until six or seven, and then it was a struggle. 
And so that that got a lot of attention. And then from there, her method spread internationally. And there's been a it's been a grassroots movement ever since. So that's I think that that's part of the reason why it's not the kind of thing that you learn about. Um, typically, even if you go to like a teacher's college, you might learn about it in passing. Or um, I mean, I, I've done a lot of academic work in psychology. People don't really talk about Maria Montessori. She's very, her work has, has been very grassroots um, in general, and especially in the US. And so it's this movement, it's this kind of bottom up movement, um, inspired by her success with children that has a lot of passionate supporters. In terms of what the method is, it is really a method of determining what children can do independently and what children can figure out and know independently and, and, and do independently means meeting their own needs, preparing their own snacks, figuring out how to resolve conflicts themselves, but also figuring out um, kind of doing math practice, um, learning how to read and write. Um, it's this method built around what can children really do independently if we prepare the environment for them in the right way. And so the crux of the method is you set up a very special environment for the child full of learning materials full of child-sized furniture, which is, again, uh, an innovation of Maria Montessori. Now there's child-sized furniture everywhere. Um, but at the time when she was making these things, she had to go to carpenters and get them to make this stuff for her. And um, you set up the environment for them. You give them a lot of freedom in that environment. And then the role of the teacher is to kind of systematically connect the child to the environment to make sure that they understand how to use various things. And from this, a lot of autonomy and independence and creativity blooms because they're working in this rich environment designed for them, this rich learning environment. So it's really child-directed, very, very child-directed. At the same time, it's very, very structured. It's very thoughtful. It's scientifically engineered. It's not just let the kid go play and they figure out what they figure out. It's this child-directed education in this kind of special lab environment almost. Thank you, Matt. Upon researching Montessori methods, and I, I was loosely familiar with it over the last few years, but over this last week, I've really had to kind of dig into it. And I got to say, it sounds like the kind of education that would have really appealed to me as a kid. Ray, what would you say the core tenets of a Montessori education are? Because during my prep, it was kind of hard to nail down what the exact principles were or how many there were. So like one Montessori website would list eight principles, another would list five, yet another would list 10. And while there was a good deal of thematic overlap among these lists, each one seemed unique in its own way. So what are the key principles of Montessori as defined by higher ground education? Sure, great question. Uh, just before getting that to that, I would add a couple of points to what Matt was saying in terms of Montessori's influence. I would just mention that like, Intellectual influence is sometimes indirect. And if you look at, for example, the circles in Vienna in the 1920s, you start seeing things like Piaget was head of the Swiss Montessori Society, you know, and Anna Freud and Erickson and, you know, the Dalton School in New York was founded by someone that broke away from Montessori. You start seeing that um, her influence, her indirect influence is at least as great as her direct influence. And this is kind of part of you know, why, you know, we focus a lot on, on intellectual history and really um, would love to see kind of Maria Montessori studied in academia as a kind of historical figure and as a, as a 20th century intellectual. And then I was also going to add in terms of from the 60s onwards, I regard Montessori as one of the greatest small business movements in American history. It's largely kind of enterprising, entrepreneurial women outside of academia, outside of the for-profit school sector, outside of the independent nonprofit sector, bootstrapping it, creating, you know, preschools and training centers and responding to parents directly 
you know, I, I, th- I think that just to flip the question on its head, like it's relatively unknown, but it's surprising how well known it is given kind of how much it's existed outside of uh, traditional institutions, uh, if that's helpful. Um, so, but going to your question, you know, the way I think of Montessori is that it's three things. It's a brand, you know, which is in the public domain. Anyone can hang up a shingle and call it Montessori. It's a specific set of practices or curriculum of which I think the three to six-year-old program is the gold standard. And then when you look under three and above six, it's largely Montessori's followers who have kind of created work and there's more differences. And then it's a set of principles. And the principles really are what we regard as kind of timeless and speak to the kind of basic, the basic science of human development. So if I say kind of what are the principles and, you know, at least the pedagogical principles, the things that really jump out to me are, um, and I think are at the core, are one is mixed age classrooms. And it seems kind of, you know, trite, but mixed age classrooms, you know, the majority of children in the world are still segregated by age in their education, seven-year-olds in one room, eight-year-olds in another room. And, you know, this is a kind of fundamental structural principle of Montessori. Another core kind of tenet is just the idea of self-directed learning and that, you know, the human mind cannot be forced to connect dots and that all, in a sense, all learning is autodidactic. And so, you know, what all anyone else can do is set the stage, kind of furnish the conditions that the human being is kind of in a very deep sense, self not only self-directed, but self-created. And then I think that, and this maybe is a little bit unique to our, our view at Higher Ground, I think that what's unique about Montessori is that she has a view of knowledge as important and as the enabler of successful human living while having a largely kind of progressive agency centric view. And so, you know, we, we think fundamental to Montessori is this idea, this principle of high agency combined with like deep knowledge or high structure and that everything else in the world is, is in a sense, one side or other of a false alternative. And so, you know, if I expand on that a little bit, when the Prussian model emerged out of Bismarck's Germany, you know, this model that is kind of dominant today, whether you go to New York or Sydney or Shanghai or anywhere in the world. In our view, the historical kind of tragedy is not not that the defenders of that model claim that it was the model of content and skills and, and, and systemized education. It's that the critics of that model conceded that if you care about kind of content and skills in education, that's the model for you. And so you have kind of the critic conceding that that is the model of, in a sense, content and skills. But on the other hand, if you care about the whole child and kind of creativity and critical thinking, then you need a different model. And you get this false alternative embedded into the last 150 years of, of education in the West, certainly, but really across the world, where it's like one side is really focused on teach to the test or on memorization or kind of content acquisition, but it becomes even though it starts out as a respect for the role of knowledge in human life, it becomes this kind of rat race. And the other side is really focused on the kind of underlying cognitive science and psychological development, but it becomes this kind of kumbaya, do whatever you want, really, you know, in, in a struggle to kind of understand um, why it ends up defaulting into groupthink. And we really think that Montessori, at the root, what is unique and what it represents her historical genius is she transcends this false alternative. Right? She transcends this, this kind of choosing between content and knowledge on the one hand or agency and you know, personal development on the other and, and kind of creates this um, really discovery learning approach that still respects the internal kind of architecture of knowledge. It respects the fact that you cannot, for example, understand the atomic theory if you don't understand that gases mix in definite proportions. So that's what we think is unique about the principles. If you go to the kind of practices, I mean, the practices, I would say, are 
a couple of things, mixed ages, control of error so that the material, the learning material itself allows for self-correction. So you're not dependent on the adult. And this is really at the zero to six ages, you know, usually kind of a, you know, a prepared environment that's usually four areas of the classroom. That's pretty consistent across all Montessori classrooms. But, you know, this idea of a prepared environment and then a few ground rules that make the whole system work. A couple follow-up questions. The first one for Matt, and then the second one for you, Ray. So Matt, why is mixed-age learning so fundamental to the Montessori method? That's something that has been kind of hanging in the back of my mind as I've prepped for our conversation. And why is it more useful than having children all within the same age year learning together, as is uh, the case in most schools? And to kind of frame this question, and to make it a little more concrete, both for myself and for our listeners, can we frame it in terms of If I were to be in a Montessori classroom right now, in a classroom at higher ground education, and I was just watching what a classroom of, you know, three, four, five, six-year-olds at higher ground education would look like, what would I see? You would see, I mean, in general, what you would see, let's take a three to six classroom. So the ages of children in this classroom range between three years old and six years old. This is primary or children's house um, Montessori classroom. You would see children working by themselves or with a friend diligently on different things, more or less independently. You would see a child cleaning a table or making himself a snack. You would see an older child laying out a bunch of beads, this math material on the ground and counting to a thousand. You might see a couple of children working with a geography puzzle on kind of putting a map together. So you would see children, um, it would be quiet. Um, There'd be like a hum, kind of like low grade discussion and activity. Children would be moving about So there's a lot of freedom, but it wouldn't be like anarchic. It wouldn't be like children running from one side of the classroom or children engaged in dramatic fantasy play. Children are working on different things. And Montessori uses the term work very deliberately. Um, In terms of what you would see for mixed ages, I mean, you would see, to some extent, you would just see children working on different things. So the younger children work on, typically work on material that's less complicated and sophisticated than that older children work on. But older children come and show the younger children how to use some of the simpler material. And younger children come and follow and kind of look up to and watch what the older children do. Why is this principle so important? I was just reading, I have a colleague that just, his wife just gave birth to twins like a week ago. And there's this quote in Montessori or this passage in Montessori that I've always found amusing where she She's like, having twins is terrible. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't, it's not like she's against twins, but she thinks you've got these two kids of the same age that basically are interested in the same things and very in, in sync with one another and are constantly competing for, to kind of be able to use the same thing. It's, it's this kind of naturally competitive environment. It's way harder in her view to have twins than it is to have like six children of different ages. She thinks that the mother of twins has a harder time than the mother of six children of different ages. You can dispute that concrete, but the principle is like, there's something natural about having children of different ages, working on different things, looking up to one another, some of them playing leadership roles, some of them playing the kind of admiring role, some of them asking for help, some of them giving help. It's like life. Only in grade school do you get everybody of the same age working in the same space and working at the same pace. And it's connected with all sorts of terrible things in pedagogy. Having students all of the same age, part of the presumption, part of the reason is they can go through the material at roughly the same pace and they can learn the same thing in the same way. And children just have more variation than that. If you have mixed ages, if you have a three-year-old and a six-year-old in the same classroom, you are forced to have a pedagogical system that is hyper-individualized to what that child can do because obviously the three-year-old and the six-year-old cannot do the same thing at the same time. And so 
that's a kind of shotgun answer, but there, there's a lot of benefits to it. It really is quite core to Montessori. Yeah, and it sounds like it could be quite empowering for the older students because it gives them an opportunity to mentor the younger ones and enables them to kind of take some at least small amount of control over their own lives by passing along the knowledge they learned in the previous years to the children who are younger than them. Yeah, and it's a, and it's super motivating for the younger children. I mean, I cannot tell you how it, like if you work with children, it's going to kind of seem obvious once it's stated, but trying to get a young child to like use a cup independently without spilling and you're giving the lesson and you're trying to show them how to do it versus they just see a slightly older child do it. The motivation for seeing a slightly older child do it, like they automatically want to do it. The, the kind of motivation to grow, the realization that it's going to take work to get there because this is an older child. There's a lot of pedagogy built into just that difference. And it feels very natural. I mean, how often do you hear when children are quite young, whenever you ask them their age, they oftentimes say, I'm almost, and then they say the age that they're about to be. Yep, yep. And that seems like a, a very natural, they're always looking. It's only when you get, you know, to, <laughs> to a certain age, do you then uh, try and round down? But when you're, a, when you're a child, it's very common to say like, oh, I'm five and a half. I'm almost six. I turned seven in October. Yeah. And that seems like a very natural connection to what you're talking about. It's, a, it's very natural. And it's connected to, um, if you're kind of moving in lockstep with a bunch of, you're in a classroom with a bunch of four-year-olds and then a bunch of five-year-olds and then a bunch of six-year-olds and now you're in second grade and now you're in third grade, you still want to be older, but it's not as obvious to you, not as kind of perceptually, experientially obvious, like the kind of growth that you've made. Um, whereas if you're an older child in a room with a bunch of younger children, you see, wow, I didn't, I've been in this classroom for three years and I used to be like that too. It creates empathy. Um, and then for older children, they have a target to kind of shoot for. They have somebody to look up to. It's, it's a system for embedding the growth mindset for individualization. It, it does a lot. It, it's a kind of multifaceted power tool in Montessori. And I have, I have a great example, if I may, just with my two boys. I have three children. Two of them are 15 months apart. And the older one, he's older at home. So when we transitioned him from the toddler room to the children's house room, to the three to six-year-old room, we moved him up at 2.8 months because, you know, four, three or four months early because he was ready. He's the oldest child at home. We wanted him to be the kind of, in a sense, the, you know, in a bigger pond and have a more of an experience. He, he tended to be assertive. My younger child, we left him in the toddler room until he was about you know, three years old and two months so extended so that he could experience being a leader. And they're doing the same math. They're doing the same language. We're very confident in terms of skill development because it's completely personalized, but we can look optimized for their particular situation and give them that experience and seeing, you know, that experience of the cycles of being the youngest and the oldest, you know, 18 months to three years, three to six, six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to 15. They go through that experience of coming in, you know, green into a new community and then leaving it as an elder. It, you know, it is very powerful as a developmental tool. Yeah, just listening to the two of you talk about the ways in which the Montessori method is helpful to children like this also kind of plants the seeds in my mind of the answer of the question I'm about to ask you, Ray, which is why haven't Montessori's methods been integrated into public schools? And I'm thinking of, you know, 30 plus student class sizes that are rampant in public schools are automatically going to be a deterrent to some of these methods, right? Because it sounds like Montessori's method is very dependent on, like you were saying, Matt, a very individualistic style of learning. And it sounds like a lot of maybe not constant attention from the teacher, but smaller class sizes, which would potentially make scaling this to a public model more difficult. Ray, can you speak on that? 
Yeah, to the contrary. To the contrary, the model is designed to have fewer adults in the environment. I have my kids in 35, you know, we have 30 and 35 student rooms and our typical rooms are 24 students. And most parents, you know, would choose a 24 student with, you know, two adults, say a three to six year old classroom or a six to nine year old classroom. And we have them, our kids, in because we understand Montessori in the classrooms that have more space, that have more materials and that have fewer adults because, you know, the learning is in the environment. Like traditionally, the teacher has always been this integration between the coach and the subject matter expert. And what the Montessori method does when you embed the materials and the learning into the environment is you can decouple those two that, and recognize that it's just a historical accident. I, I actually think that a lot of the ratios you see in Head Start programs and in preschools and then all the way through elementary schools are more than enough are fine. In fact, they could be kind of, um, you know, I think there's money to be saved if you want to get quality education, let's say to the underserved communities, you can do it cheaper by switching to a Montessori program. So I don't think that that's the issue. I think the issue, um, the issue is complex, you know, and there's obviously kind of an establishment that is politically, you know, in self-preservation mode and the inertia of that. Um, But if you even leave that aside, I think that the fundamental challenge is that it's hard. It's hard to switch to a new methodology. It's hard to develop the sufficient degree of kind of experts, trainers, human capital. Like, you know, um, it's very difficult to train a Montessori school. When charter schools open that are Montessori, many of them crash and burn because it's too hard to take 300 students on day one and transition them. We can talk later if we are interested in kind of our work, but part of what we tried to do is figure out what are the key drivers of scale. Uh, and develop radical solutions. On top of it being hard, I think there's very little capital available. So I think if you make an analogy between, say, healthcare and education, in healthcare, you have 15% of government money going towards basic research and development, and education is like less than 1%. You know, even leaving aside, you know, whether it would be well spent. You have in healthcare tremendous amount of philanthropy going into like find the cure for cancer, like basic cures, not just, you know, availability and access. Whereas in education, it's all about getting access to underserved communities, disadvantaged populations of the current model. Let's get better SAT scores. Private equity in healthcare. Also, I think there's an established model going into research and and you don't see that, you know, in education. And then venture capital and education is entirely focused on ed tech. So you literally have no pool of capital that is like investing in mixed age classrooms, right? And so there's a capital challenge on top of the fact that the the human capital, the talent, you know, the ability of, of developing the expertise is really hard. And then I think that finally, there's a lot of facts about the Montessori movement. It's pretty early in the history of the movement, even though it's 100 years old, when you're talking about a major world-changing historical figure. We're only now in the last 10 years shifting from a cult of personality to, uh, you know, seeing Montessori as a historical figure. I think that there's been, there's been incredible passion and, and conviction and understanding in the Montessori movement, but it's been paired with sometimes a bunker mindset where you're trying to protect this precious thing from the world and, and, and not necessarily invite fellow travelers. We're really excited because we think that all that's changing. Could it have changed 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Maybe. But I think there are historical reasons why that was hard. And it's happening now. Let's actually discuss what you mentioned about why it can be hard to transition students to the Montessori method and why so many schools seem to crash and burn. Let's let's address that now because I imagine that the average listener hears that. And if, it, if they're anything like me, 
like their ears perk up, right? Because I think the natural next question is, is why is that happening? Why is it difficult to take students who might come from just an ordinary public school background and then you transition them to something that sounds great and it sounds like it's a natural fit for a lot of kids? Why do so many kids, when they make that transition, tend to, I don't know if it's the kids failing out, if it's the school failing to live up to their own mission, and how is higher ground education tackling this very issue? And I I would put that question to both of you. Matt, I know that you're in charge of a lot of the content that goes through higher ground education, so you can address that from a content perspective, but I give that to either one of you who wants to start it off. Sure, I'll start, and then I'll turn it over to Matt. And what I would say is that fundamentally, it's about understanding the learning science. It's about if you're taking students who have been given carrots and sticks their whole life, they're in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and are in a really deep sense in this state of learned helplessness or passivity in school, um, I don't think it's that hard to awaken you know, that spark in them, but I think it takes a couple of years. And I think you have to kind of think through what does that look like in year one and year two and year three, whereas a lot of the attempts to implement Montessori have been walking in and doing it everything. You know, It's a Montessori program from day one. And I think then if you ask, well, why is that happening? I think there's a failure to understand what is unique about Montessori and what is like unique about really about human development, that this dichotomy that I mentioned earlier, that people are in the grips of it. So like, you know, you go from a traditional approach where you're, you know, a teacher talks at you and you're expected to memorize and process it. And that's not really working to a kind of like project-based learning, you know, go tinker, go do whatever you want, express your opinion, opine really. And so the actual issue of like grappling with like, how do you develop an inner discipline and a respect for fact and a respect for, you know, the process of knowledge while respecting agency, while respecting, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, you can't understand genetics if you don't understand the evolution and heredity. But what if a student is interested in genetics and not interested in heredity? Like, how, you know, how do you actually grapple with that? Like, if you're not really taking that head on, you're not doing the work of learning science that's necessary to then implement these operating models. Matt, I'll turn it over to you to talk about some of the things that we're doing. I think um, just to expand a little bit on what you said first, like if you think about other major cultural shifts you might be familiar with like, um, oh, I don't know, here's one, like the shift from old media to new media, where you go from having a relatively small number of broadcast networks and channels to like everybody's a publisher and everybody's consuming things and everybody can find little niche groups. That is like a sea change in how information is produced and consumed. It's a sea change probably as big as the printing press. And it creates new challenges. Like it creates new institutional challenges for the people that are kind of working on these problems professionally, whether you're at a social network company or news company or, or an education company, even and you're thinking about these things, you're like, okay, like there's new challenges that people are now confronted with. How do I help them navigate these challenges? And then for the individuals, especially during these transition times, it, it, it places a burden on you to figure things out and to exercise judgment. I mean, there's, there's millions of examples of this. Um, I think that w- like people are experiencing a small scale version of this with COVID and schools where parents are all of a sudden confronted with decisions about pedagogy and um, what their children are doing all day at home. And they have to think things through in a kind of first principled way because this is an unprecedented situation. And it's hard to kind of think through and apply these things and it requires differences and you can't just translate what was happening at school to Zoom. And even if you do, it might not look that good. It's th- this is the kind of realm that we're in when we're talking about I think that the difference between Montessori education and traditional education is enormous. It's enormous. It's like going from new media to old media to new media or going from like a blue chip 
company where you're a salary man your whole life to a startup culture or something like that. It requires adjustment. It requires a certain transition. Now, we do a lot to smooth out this transition. I mean, we get all the time, we get students coming into our programs that haven't been in our pro- So like you get an elementary student who hasn't been to our early childhood program. What do you do? They're not used to Montessori. You get an adolescent student who hasn't been to our elementary program. Um, what do you do? They're not interested in Montessori. There's, there's a whole way that you can tackle this where you're, and like Ray said, I don't think it's that hard, but it does take, it's not that hard in terms of the motivation, but it does take awareness that there is going to be a transition, a kind of culture transition for the student and that they need to kind of have their hand held through it and, and need individualized support as they start to take more responsibility for their learning. I would add a point, kind of a foundational point to our conversation. So we've talked about how, you know, we believe that there is this historical error of bifurcating or this false alternative between progressive and classical education. And that's kind of a core barrier structurally to education reform, that false understanding. Well, the second equally deep structural problem is the bifurcation or the kind of split between K-12 and early education. And we attribute a lot of significance in terms of the state of education in the world to the fact that public schools and private schools typically start at kindergarten. Maybe they start, you know, pre-K or, you know, four-year-olds or three-year-olds. They certainly don't start with three-month-olds. And that you have like two entirely different ecosystems, different regulatory bodies, different trainings, different university departments. For when you're talking about early education and childcare on the one hand, when you're talking about K-12. And so in a context, you know, again, not that you cannot bring in children at any age, like the human spirit is, if anything, it's an adapting machine, right? The capacity to adapt for us is, is the kind of watchword. So, you know, this is not something that we would write off of children that, that are 15, for example. Um, we, we bring in 15-year-olds. But if you really want to drive fundamental reform and change, like starting young and starting kind of with um, Head Start programs rather than public schools, if you're going into kind of an area that where you want to really help people help themselves or starting, you know, with uh, child care, corporate care, employer sponsored care, and then trying to carry those relationships and carry those habits all the way through for child and for family, um, we think, you know, is the way to very quickly change the way that education is done. Because, uh, you know, amongst other things, kind of the six months before and after particularly your first child is born is one of the few times in adult life that a human being is willing to rethink their entire philosophy of life, rethink everything. And so if you want to really drive change, like that, that's a kind of lever that you have to pull and that's something that you have to capitalize on. And so, you know, you want a generation of parents that are not stuck on like what SAT scores their kids get, but really care about like, do they have this deep capacity to learn and think and navigate their way through life? materially and, and spiritually, it's a lot easier if you start with, you know, parents of three-month-olds than you start with parents of you know, five or six-year-olds to kind of make that push. Yeah, that brings up a lot of interesting questions. I guess the first one I would put to you, Ray, is how can we, and I guess by we, I mean the two of you, <laughs> but we as a society, teach and train children to think outside of things like tests and teach them to learn holistically in a world that seems test-obsessed, how do you fight upstream against an entire society and public school system and resume, test result-oriented work environment that all seems to be going the other way? If the entire country, and in many ways, many parts of the world, teaching to the test and expecting 
kids when they get out of school or become adults to have those metrics. How do you maintain the goals of a Montessori education while also understanding the real world that these kids are eventually going to grow into? Yeah, yeah. I'll make a couple of points and then I'll turn it over to Matt. I think he has deep thoughts here. A couple of points. So first of all, the world is changing. Like employers like Ernst and Young, let alone Facebook and Google are saying, you know, if you have more than three years work experience, we don't need to see your undergraduate transcripts. You know, in post-secondary education, UChicago and Harvard and other universities that are really de-emphasizing or not even requiring SAT scores. So it's really K-12 that's stuck. And I do think long-term, there is a need for an alternative assessment framework. And when I look at the batteries of tests that psychologists have been using for 30 years to measure kind of adaptability and executive functioning, like sorting tasks, you know, why isn't anyone trying to put those into report cards and give a sorting task every quarter to every child? Like, you know, we'll learn from it. We won't get it right in the first time. And so we definitely believe that that's important. And, you know, I think that in partner with certain academics and others, you know, um, we're part of the pioneering few that I think are really pushing that type of approach. And I think Matt can say more about that. But I would add to that, that it's not that hard practically to jump through the hoops. Again, if you start young enough, like, you know, I opened a school 10 years ago in Tiger Mom Central, where everyone just cared about test scores. And we had a science program that we really didn't want to corrupt and we wanted to preserve the integrity of the program. And so what, what did we do? We like from sixth through eighth grade, we created after school science test prep and we called it test prep because we wanted to signal to every student that this is not science. This is just test prep. And you do it twice a week for 30 minutes. We built it into a program. They got into the honor science high schools that they wanted to these kids. And they, you know, it's not that hard. They memorize the jargon and jump through the hoops because they had been through our system. And so we just took that on as part of what we're preparing them to do, but we didn't let it corrupt the integrity of kind of what we wanted them to hold as, you know, evidence-based thinking and kind of a scientific worldview. And we call this general approach, you know, one of our core values is practical idealism, that like idealism in order to matter and in order to really uh, manifest in the world, you know, has to be practical and not cynical. And one of the examples I've talked about is Abraham Lincoln in the movie Lincoln. And I, I don't know if he actually said this, but he, he has this line in the movie where he says, like, a compass will tell you, you know, where true north is, but a compass is not going to tell you how to get around that swamp. You know, and we often talk a lot about how you might have to go south or east or west to get around that swamp, right? And so I think a lot of people that are idealistic in education don't take seriously the need to kind of work to, in a sense, succeed on the conventional system while you're trying to uproot it. It's a certain type of creativity. And it's, you know, it's, it's, if you kind of have the humility not to think that every parent is going to kind of completely abandon everything they know, and that you as the educator have some responsibility to check those boxes while ultimately minimizing and trying to transcend it. You know, we were able to three years be in a school where we felt like we were making zero compromises in terms of our program and we were full. We had a wait list, you know, we were the most expensive and um, we were attracting the type of parents you would think that wouldn't go for Montessori. Yeah, lots of points to make here. So, I mean, in general, I don't think that tests are a terrible thing. It's what you mentioned. It's the testing culture that's the problem. It's not just that there are these tests. It's that there are tests that the prep for the tests and orientation of everything around the tests and the amount of time that it takes to prep for the tests and the like the tests kind of they ossify and they take on this box checking character of this is how you succeed at life rather than being tests, tests of something else that you care about, right? Like tests are just means. And our students take little math quizzes and they take the SAT. And I, I mean, I think that the SAT is actually a decent test of 
a student's verbal ability and other math problem-solving skills. The problem isn't the SAT. The problem is the pressure around the SAT and the culture of SAT test prep. And that is not that hard to break away from while still helping students succeed at the SAT. I mean, Montessori's attitude towards tests, I guess you could call it, or schoolwork, is that it should, insofar as it's possible, even starting from an early age, that students should be assessed on the work of the student should be, I think her terminology is, should be judged as a product of life, not as a product of school. So it's not like, wow, I made this cool movie. It's a school project. I got together with my friends and we made a movie and it's, it's this fun school project and I can put it on my college applications. It's like, well, was the movie any good? Who watched it? Did you get it on YouTube? Did you market it? Did it go viral? Like, who did you collaborate with? Did you, did you get to talk to any filmmakers? Did you get any industry experience? Like, what did you learn? Like, how, like, this was your first experience, but like, how, how good was it? How far off do you think it is from making, from making something more polished? The, the whole attitude of, I mean, we have students who are helping with scientific research in university labs who are making amazing creative art, who have started businesses. Um, that's at the older end. But even at the younger end, young children meeting their own needs by preparing food for themselves and keeping the classroom clean and making gifts for each other and working with materials where they can independently see their own progress. I mean, there's something artificial about it. It's the Montessori uses this term, the prepared environment to indicate that this environment has been specially prepared and is different from the environment of life. Um, So it's not like just throw people into the chaos of real life and let them sink or swim. It is a lot of structured support, but it's structured support for life. And the main problem with testing is that, especially the testing culture, is that it's detached from reality. It doesn't work. That's the fundamental problem. And so it's integrating it with more causally valid, characterologically and psychologically valid measures with measures that people actually use in life to assess the quality of one another's work and progress and learning. It's a whole project in and of itself. It's also one of the reasons why we go through high school. Because I think if you go back to your earlier question about why hasn't the Montessori movement taken, if you will, you know, it's about one or two percent of people in the world get what I would consider one year even of a quality Montessori education. Part of the answer is that it's largely focused on early education, some elementary education, and that to truly show in practice that this works, you do have to, at least at moderate scale, demonstrate you know how high school education is addressed and so from the outset it was very important to us to ourselves show that we could kind of in a sense finish the process and that help children mature into adults that are self-directed are poised are capable and efficacious you know full of life in the in the various ways that we think children should uh, mature to become and I, you know, I think that it's an exciting time because I think the world of post-secondary education, as I said, and just like the whole kind of employer space is changing so radically that I think actually there's a lot of appetite to explore change and, and the credentialing kind of infrastructures is, you know, it's been gamed, right? So people are gaming it on the kind of standard model. And I think it's not that hard to you know, do the minimum that's responsible. Yeah, th- this is a this is like a wider problem way outside of Montessori. So when I in my university professor days, like at Penn and Franklin and Marshall, these good schools, like every professor spends a lot of time deprogramming their students from this box checking mentality. It's not like everybody in higher ed is perfectly satisfied with the elementary, middle school, and high school education that their students are enculturated and they hate it. And the more elite the university, the more they hate it. That in and of itself is a sign of widespread dissatisfaction. There's all these initiatives. Um, at the middle and high school level, Mastery Transcript Consortium that are working on alternate modes of assessment. It is a really exciting time. This leads 
well into a question I have for you, Matt. But before we get to that, just so I'm understanding, it sounds like the problem isn't with tests or testing per se. It's how children learn to answer those tests. And higher ground education and Montessori in general, sounds like it's preparing children to perform well on these tests by teaching them about subjects holistically so that they have a mastery of the material to a point where the answers come from a deep knowledge rather than teaching students what the answer to a multiple choice question is without the child actually understanding how to arrive at the answer. Do I have that right? Yeah, I would say it's the classical perspective of a discipline and the, we use the term internally of a lens that what we're giving, when you really understand science, it's not even mastery of that particular material. It's that through that content, the reason that knowledge actually is important is it gives you a lens on the world and a lens that you will then continue to evolve. And so it's a very kind of traditional classical view of, of liberal arts education kind of transfigured into a Montessori context where, you know, do you have that basic grounding such that, you know, you're sensitized to the things that are salient out there and you're able to, you know, use that lens, which is a combination of experiential learning and, you know, scholarship to govern and guide your life. Yeah. Like learning how to play one song when you're first learning the guitar versus learning the deep knowledge of chords and scales. Exactly. To you, Matt, in an essay that you wrote entitled Culture of Work, Culture of Knowledge, you said, quote, one of the most profound gifts we can impart upon a student is to help nurture her capacity for and love of work. Work is what we spend most of our lives doing, and it should be approached in a way that properly creates and grounds a good life. The work of nurturing work is a constant priority for educators throughout all stages of development, end quote. And this, I think, is a laudable goal and one that I fully support. But Oftentimes, the work that adults are assigned, or perhaps <laughs> more appropriately consigned to, is often less fulfilling, less engaging, and less rewarding than the work that they engage with in their primary, high school, or even collegiate education. I used to run in a social circle that included a lot of lawyers, a lot of lawyers. And I was often the odd man out at the cocktail parties, the lone creative in a room full of esquires, right? And most of them shared two qualities they were well paid. And they were bitter. And they were bitter because they loved law school, as difficult as it was, and they hated lawyering. In law school, they were challenged to consider historical and impactful court decisions and legal doctrines, expand their thinking about crucial and critical issues of freedom and justice. And then they graduated, they got a job at a big firm, and found themselves spending 14 hours a day checking commas and titles and legal documents at the cost of $300 an hour to the client. Many were disillusioned. And over the course of my years of knowing them, several quit the law entirely. I saw brilliant minds wither on the vine from being understimulated. So how does higher ground nurture a capacity for and love of work in the classroom that can translate into a real world where the work is often far less rewarding and less challenging than the kind that Montessori provides? Great question. I mean, the premise is not that every job is worth doing for every person or that um, any, whatever kind of situation you find yourself in with regards to work that you should make it meaningful and double down on it. And kind of that, that's where you find yourself in life. I, th I think it's with certain professions, law is one of them. Medicine is another there. Part of the issue is it's really interesting how you described it as they love law school, but, but didn't like the work of law. I mean, part of the issue is that these are Professions that run the risk of drawing people in who are used to box checking, like they're they're the kind of classic professions where 
They're successful professions. Your parents might push you into them. They're high status. They're high paying. Um, there's a pa- there's a deliberate path for them. There's a very clear path. You go to college, you major in biology, or you major in constitutional law or history, you take the LSAT, you take the MCAT, you go to graduate school. And then so there's this whole kind of systematized industry that you kind of find yourself in the, in the machinations of. I think that part of what you learn in a Montessori education, certainly in our schools, is how to continuously assess and make judgments about the kind of work path that you're on. How to, how to take a more life design perspective. I would hope that our students finding themselves in that situation as a lawyer where they were really miserable in their job would be like, why exactly did I get into law? It wasn't to dot the I's and cross the T's and fleece clients. Um, none, none of this is bringing me money. It had something to do with argumentation and history. And is there anything else in law that I could do that would be more about that? Or is there anything adjacent to law that I could do? And how can I start moving myself in the direction of um, work that I find valuable? The whole approach of this is your life and you have to thoughtfully think about it as a whole and make decisions within it. And that I think you quoted me on this, um, that you spend a, a significant portion of your life in work, that work is your connection to reality. It's your way of shaping the world. It's your way of getting confidence that this is something that you have to take seriously. I guess I could like flip it and do an analogy. It's like a lot of people are in broken relationships and are really unhappy in their relationships and they don't know how to get out of their relationships and they're headed for divorce or they're headed for a, a pattern, a kind of negative pattern that where they're going to be continuously unfulfilled. What is it, these deep things like not being satisfied in love and work? What kinds of things do you need as a person to be able to escape those attractor basins, to identify them, to put yourself on a better path? You need a profound capacity for self-reflection, for thought, for thinking, for making difficult choices for enduring, for persisting, for making judgments as to when you should persist and when you should not. You need the kinds of things that you get with mastery of disciplines um, that Ray was talking about, that you get with a more agency-based education where you're making choices from the beginning and you're just used to it and you're used to taking responsibility for your life. Um, I think it's much easier to extricate yourselves from those situations if you are in a kind of high structure, high autonomy educational approach that we've been talking about than if you've been on a traditional path where you have been railroaded and you don't know how to get yourself out of structures that other people have created for you. I want to tee something up for you, Ray, because I think that this is related because it takes us to the topic of human flourishing and adult flourishing, which you've spoken on. I want to give you the the chance to respond, but I, I want to reference real quick in a video entitled The Goals of Montessori Education. And this is just going to be a quote fest. But you said, Ray, quote, the goal of a Montessori classroom is to enable a child to optimize his or her ability to gain the most out of cognitive activity and physical activity outside the classroom. You're in the classroom in order to gain the knowledge, the skills, the inspiration, the perspective that you need to flourish as an adult outside of the classroom. And I think that a lot of what Matt was just saying, if I understand it correctly, really comes down to flourishing, right? If you're in a toxic relationship, if you're in a toxic job, if you're withering on the vine in some aspect of your life, then you are not flourishing as an adult. Later in that video, you said that a Montessori classroom is really trying to optimize for adult flourishing. So, and I also want to give you a chance to say whatever you were about to say, but I just wanted to ask, what does a flourishing adult look like to kind of continue on what Matt was saying to a higher ground education? And perhaps to get more personal to you, how are other teaching methods, either public or private, failing children as they navigate their own paths to hopefully become flourishing, contributing adults to American society? Yeah, great question. And, and, and it is connected. I, you know, I was going to just make the simple point, which is totally related to what you just asked, that 
when we talk about work, we're talking about a very profound capacity, and it's not really um, something that you can assess merely by knowing kind of what profession someone's in. You know, I often make the point that people that clean, like say when they break up a, a relationship or get fired or something, and they kind of find themselves in cleaning their house versus someone that goes and crashes on the couch and like just is lethargic. Those two things are not the equivalent, you know, like, you know, exceptions aside, like, is your basic identity connected to your work and what are you kind of reasserting your capacity to take control through your work or is it through your some other group identity or something else? I mean, that has a lot of significance in terms of your ability to navigate precisely these challenges that we all face in life and that, you know, come out of left field. It's inherent in life that, that that's going to happen. And so I think it's important to think of work and knowledge as the kind of two pillars as, as something much deeper than kind of your profession um, or your kind of um, superficially kind of like what you can talk about. Um, I would also just add that part of what may be going on in your life, you know, I'm married to a lawyer who went to top 10 law school and has kind of been down that path. Part of it is like, how much are you inquiring about like, what is the connection? I had a friend who whose job was basically the arbitrage between the price of a stock on the New York Stock Exchange and the price of the same stock on NASDAQ and correcting it. And he spent a lot of time thinking about how does this create value? I think if he had arrived at the answer that it doesn't, he would have left. But in fact, you know, it's an allocation of capital that, you know, gets money into the hands of creators. And I think that a lot of these jobs that we're dismissive of, in fact, do create real value in society, including things like, you know, what micro pushes in terms of manufacturing jobs, like all, you know, this idea of all work is noble, I think does need to be the default premise. And a lot of times it is the particular person in the wrong role. And so that comes to your point about human flourishing. For me personally, like my favorite quote is Sophocles, you know, in Antigone, I believe, where he says like numberless, you know, are the world's wonders, but none more wonderful than man, right? Like if there's this kind of like the human being in action is a sight to behold in the individual human life fully lived fully lived is an, is an end in itself and is its kind of own reward. And that's what we try to serve, right? And so we are not trying to say that a student, you know, or a child should become an adult that has this type of political view or this type of religious view or even this type of career. We want to help children become adults that are fully engaged and completely engaged in the act of living life and where the kind of delta between what they could have done and could have made of themselves and what they in fact have made of their lives is minimized. And I think that that's as varied as human beings, right? And so it's really the closest analogy that I come to is like the Declaration of Independence. Like the Montessori is an education with the Declaration of Independence is in politics where it's like, how do you create a system that is designed not only in recognition, but in celebration of the fact that that the system is not determining the particular end, that the end is kind of determined by the, the agent within that system. I think the thing, I don't think we're the only ones that want this. I, I think that part of what's complicated about education is that the power of a human relationship can be so transformative. I had a few great teachers and a good teacher can mitigate so much, including a fundamentally flawed system. And part of the problem in education and thinking about education as this kind of panacea is that the human being, you know, you don't give a human being agency and human being has agency. And they're going to like the story of humanity is the story of individual human beings just taking charge of their lives. And there's a real sense in which, um, you know, I, I'm an optimist about human beings and I think that the kind of um, we can help, but you know, it's really 
you, know, you don't want to get too arrogant about your role as an educator or as a parent. I mean, you're a passenger in this developing child's life. So we try to kind of take that approach. But, you know, we do think that these two simple things, a kind of an inner culture of knowledge, a truth seeking, right? A love of knowledge and a love of like being on a quest to correspond your understanding to the kind of way the world really is, plus an inner culture of work where you find meaning in doing and you, and you feel a sense of efficacy that if we can give the child the best shot at developing these two tendencies in himself or in herself, that we, we've really given them the best shot that we can at living a flourishing life. So to Ray and Matt, to both of you, these next couple questions might feel a bit like a challenge, but it's more me trying to work out something that's been on my mind for a little while as I've gotten older and I've watched some of my close childhood friends have children. Two of them had uh, newborns earlier this year, and I'm watching them both raise their respective daughters in, in kind of very different ways, but they're both getting really fantastic results, I think. So I'm going to need a little bit of runway on this next question to kind of set the scene here, but I appreciate you giving me the time to kind of extrapolate here. Sounds great. I want to contrast the Montessori method against a school across the pond. I imagine the two of you may have heard about it. I've been following it for some time now. It's called the Michaela Community School, founded by Catherine Burblesing. Yep. To excerpt from an article in Time about the school, quote, based in Wembley Park, an underprivileged area of North London, most famous for hosting England's national soccer stadium, the school has become internationally renowned since opening in 2014, dubbed by the country's newspapers as Britain's strictest school. The school's 484 pupils study in an atmosphere of rigid austerity. Demerits are given out for the slightest errors, forgetting a pen, slouching, turning to look out of a window during a lesson. Two demerits in one class equals a detention. To continue the quote, the school day is run with military precision. Everything from lessons to lunch is timed to the second with the aid of large digital clocks placed in each room. Teachers often give their classes a time frame in which to accomplish a task, 10 seconds to take out your books and open them to page 32 before counting down backwards. The transition between classes is also timed and completely silent. A black line runs down the center of the corridor carpets and children are expected to silently proceed either side to their next classes. Eagle-eyed teachers stand ready to reprimand those who walk too slowly. Every detail is designed to maximize the amount of learning time. In the student bathrooms, there are no mirrors lest they distract the students. End quote. Now, I don't want to pit Montessori against Michaela. I'm an admirer of both methods. But this is merely a small window into how this free school, which for Americans we would call a charter school here in the States, is run. It serves mostly low-income students and has been considered controversial since its founding in 2014, but it seems to get results. In 2019, five years after opening, the school received its first ever GCSE scores, or General Certificate of Secondary Education Results. The GCSE, for the Americans listening to this podcast, is a mandatory exit exam that most pupils take at the end of their mandatory education, around the age of 18. And the students at Michaela performed four times better than the national average kind of proving a lot of Catherine Burble sings detractors wrong. So I guess two questions I would pose to you. And again, this is not about pitting one educational system against another. That is not the intent of this question. But what does this say? What do these results say, if anything, about the fungibility of children to different learning environments? And how can two such incredibly different teaching methods, Montessori and Michaela, both achieve stellar results? Can I go? <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot to say, but go ahead. I, I have something to say. I mean, this is this is um, 
I think that, that this has to be taken seriously. My my instinct to respond to this, there are examples in the U.S. too with um, Success Academy and other other kinds of stricter approaches, also often applied for low income students. They do tend to get results, and they tend to get results that are better than traditional schools and even most progressive methodologies that are applied in these circumstances. Um, so I think it, I think it needs to be taken very seriously, and I wouldn't poo poo any of that. Here's a kind of shotgun array of thoughts, some of them critical and some of them friendly. So on the friendly side, I would be curious as to what the variance in student and parent experience is like from the perspective of their choice or their engagement. So there's a big difference between you decide you want to join the army and you go to boot camp. And it's something that you want to do and you like the routine and you like the structure and you're looking forward to that bringing a certain kind of rhythm to your life versus you're drafted into the army and you go to boot camp and you're subjected to the same things. Part of what, um, I mean, Maria Montessori was a huge fan of the Boy Scouts. Some scout troops are less regimented and some are more regimented. But one of the things that she loved about the Boy Scouts is that it's voluntary. Um, you choose to go to the Boy Scouts. It's not like, not necessarily for everyone, but for the students who do it, there's a certain discipline to it that you're embracing and that you're deciding to embrace. And in the act of you choosing it, you de-alienate yourself from it and you can get a lot from it. You're kind of trusting the adults around you and you're trusting the system in a certain way. And there's all sorts of analogies to adult life and different kinds of circumstances you can be in to different kinds of mentors you can have to how you think about those things and the role that they play in your life. On the critical side, there's a ton of research that direct instruction is really effective and that, it, that it's more effective than, than a lot of other methodologies. I think part of what's going on in these cases of, of strict direct instruction is that it's an actual consistent methodology. There is a view, a specific view as to what the student should be taught and to how to approach it that all teachers align on, that all parents align on, and that all students align on. The level of knowledge and education and the level of you know pedagogical expertise, wisdom, skill in terms of how to get education right, the learning science right, is so low. It's unfathomably low in my mind. It's I, I don't think that most people realize how ignorant we are in the field of education. That there is a sense in which any distinctly defined approach is going to get you better results than what typically happens at most public schools and most traditional schools, which is a hodgepodge. It depends on the teacher that you get. It depends on the state curriculum that you're assigned. It depends on how you relate to your peers. There's a, there's a bunch of randomness to it. A parent can come in and petition for a French program to open. Okay, we'll do a French program. If you want a French program, it's like, what is your view on foreign language? What is your approach? What do you think is important as a school? What are your aims as a parent with education? These things are left kind of hazy into implication and unclear. And these direct instruction models, these kind of stricter direct instruction models, nothing is left unclear. And that is an advantage. So I guess that that's less on the critical side and more on the prey side. So on the critical side, I think that there's a real risk. I mean, imagine going to the school for six years or eight years or 12 years, eight hours a day. You are internalizing something through that method. You're internalizing in a bad case, you're internalizing a certain kind of obedience and compliance. You're, you're internalizing a certain inside the box thinking. There's things that go along with that that I think you can internalize that are good. I'm not against strict, rigorous programming, but as a method where you're like literally telling students where to go and where to look and every single method of the day is accounted for, just purely in terms of the opportunity cost, you are not figuring out how to manage your life. You're postponing that until way later after your teenage years, way into adulthood. That is not the best time to learn those things. The best time to learn those things is when you're younger. And so there, there's a real opportunity costs. I could say a lot more too, but those are three thoughts that occur to me. 
Yeah, I would add, I think Matt covered most of the points that I would make. I, I make a huge analogy to kind of sports and the kind of ways in which sports affect um the ways in which you can have agency, even though you're getting up at six in the morning and doing drills every day. The way that I hold it in my mind and the kind of phrase I use is we the Athenians, you know, and it's like the Spartans are getting their kids up at 5 a.m. and running the drills. And it takes a lot of conviction as an Athenian to believe that your way is right because, you know, you have this insecurity that like the, actually the right way is drill and kill, is kind of this no excuses school. And I think you just have to take it straight and you just have to explore why that is. And I think part of it is because agency is complicated. We give people license all the time in life to grab us by the collar and make us be our best selves. And you can't throw that out if it is, in fact, a choice. You know, structure, most people that believe in high agency approaches, I think, do not really understand the role and the place and the importance of structure. And so when you're dealing with false alternatives, I, to be honest, I would choose this side of the false alternative for my kids. Secondly, I think that the goal of these educators, you know, and I'm a fan of many of these schools, the goal of these educators is agency of their children into adulthood. So how does that transfigure what they do, right? It's like a parent who is incredibly strict, but is really deeply intending for their child to grow up and to be a great adult, you can do a lot of things wrong and you can be off in your methodology and still basically end up right because in some sense that intent is being made manifest. It's clear. It's, it's informing all sorts of choices. Whereas you can take, let's say, the much more correct approach, but you're really doing it for some you know, some reason beyond the actual needs of the children that you're serving. I think that comes across in very subtle ways, various subtle ways. And that, you know, when you're dealing with a field that's so psychological, like, you know, the unpacking of how those things work. I mean, read something like Captain's Courageous, right? And a wealthy, spoiled kid gets thrown onto a boat with a bunch of workers who whack him in the head when he doesn't listen and stuff. And like, why does he find meaning in that? And why does that work to transform him? Because they care about him. Because like, then a sense that those those mechanisms are really in the background and not, and not central. They don't represent what they would in many other cases. But in the end, I do not believe that, you know, it's like poor children in particular or children, you know, need like these types of no excuses schools. I think what they need is something that these schools are getting right and something that the kind of project-based progressive schools are getting right, neither of which really work on their own. But when, you know, when synthesized in the right way, create essentially the education of the Enlightenment, which is both, you know, respectful of the fact that there is universal scientific knowledge that is not opinion, but also respectful of the fact that each kind of individual is an island and is in a, in a real sense in charge of their own life. And you can't force a mind. Yeah. And I want to re-articulate that this was not meant as any kind of, you know, oh, one is better than the other. I think what I'm just learning to reiterate, seeing my childhood friends now have infants and young children of their own and, and seeing how, you know, they're going to different resources and looking at different YouTube videos and reading different books. And it seems to me, how do I articulate this? I mean, I look at these kids at, at Michaela, right? And I also look at videos of children at different Montessori schools, including the ones run by higher ground education. And, you know, if, if you ask them vague enough questions, you could probably in some ways get at least similar answers in that children in both environments seem to be very happy with the work that they're doing. They seem to love school in ways that children at more disorderly and chaotic public school environments don't because they don't get the opportunity to learn in a safe and 
friendly environment. So the question wasn't really so much, and I don't think either of you answered it in this way, but I just, I want to be clear, I think for myself, that it wasn't to say that one learning method is better than the other, but rather if I'm thinking from the perspective of a parent who maybe has a four or five or six year old or younger, and they're trying to look at the landscape of education, and maybe they realize, okay, I don't want to necessarily send my kid to LAUSD or the San Francisco public school system or wherever they may be in the United States or worldwide. They're looking for an alternative for their child. And they can see that different styles of teaching seem to all get good results and they reach those results in different ways. And so I think to a parent yeah. who sees these different results, they, they think, wow, all these kids, no matter what methodology they seem to be following, seem to be happy. They seem to be doing well. And so I guess. If you were speaking to a parent, and obviously you're biased (laughs) because you're running a Montessori-style education, how do they make that choice when it seems to be so often that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems to be the binding material that leads to a flourishing child is parental engagement in that if the parent or parents are engaged, even if the child is in a school that isn't that great. It seems to be like if the parent is really engaged with what their child is doing and how their child is learning, that that seems to be a very important ingredient that can almost act as an umbrella or transcend the kind of education the child is getting. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, but I don't think it's true. I think that benign neglect is often like a great way of parenting. And when you look at like, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about like, what is our assessment framework? If we're talking about, you know, some kind of test score, then yes, maybe it correlates with level of engagement because you need, you know, the more you're nagging and the more you're prompting, you know, the more likely you are to just like do the, you know, monotonous exercises in order to get that score. I think it's more complicated. I think it's it's something like if you're talking about engagement, if you as a parent are observing your child and love your child and just trying to do the best for your child, I do think this is not such a delicate science in the sense that that does come across in a lot of ways. But I think the right analogy is to medicine and to healthcare. Like just because poor nutrition and eating McDonald's every day doesn't necessarily manifest and everyone seems to be happy doesn't mean that it is right. Like just because we don't have the answers right now, it doesn't mean that any methodology is as good as any other. One that's, I think that those two simple markers that I mentioned, like is it a culture of work? Is it developing a capacity to do great deep work, sustained concentrated activity and your children finding meaning in work? And then is it a culture of knowledge, of truth-seeking? I think that a lot of schools, not even the school, even at the level of a classroom, like that's a pretty good filter. And like you can forget Montessori, you can forget classical education, or you can forget the different labels and just ask yourself that question. And I think that gets you much of the way there. But ultimately, I do think that in the fullness of time, like these methodologies matter, right? And that when you look over the course of a complete life, 60, 70, 80, you know, 100 years of adult life, and you think about like, what is required to be able to navigate changes? I don't think that, you know, as we're seeing in the world today, I don't think that any method is going to be as good as any other. It's just just that it's not often attributed back to the education system. If you have a nine-month-old or a 10-month-old, and you are responsive every second that they start crying and you are not allowing them to exert any effort because you just don't want to see them at all kind of rattled that is not going to lead to a connection between self-directed activity between effort and joy that's going to lead to a connection between passivity and joy rather than passivity and boredom 
And if, on the other hand, you, you're withholding love and affection, that is not going to lead to a connection, a goodwill towards human beings and a belief that human beings are value. If you're forcing your kids to share rather than to take turns, like sharing at a certain age before three years old, does plant a seed that other human beings are a threat, threat right? Um, because you can't understand why your toys are being taken away, whereas taking turns is modeling like, you know, a kind of collaborative experience. I believe on the one hand that these things actually really do matter and that we organizationally have an obligation to kind of articulate them and help increase understanding of them. Um, While on the other hand, I also think that parenting and by extension education is one of these things where you really honestly do mean well because it's so psychological. You can get away with a lot if you just love these kids and just want the best for them. You know, I'm fully reconciled how those two sit with each other. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's as simple as like, you know, the outcomes are there. Like I, I actually don't think they are. I think the last point I'll say is something that I say often, you know, the children of Weimar Germany, who were, you know, the most progressive kind of area in, in the world at that time, became the Hitler youth. You know, they flipped on a dime because there was something about their approach, even though they were getting all these conclusions that you would think that would kind of arm them. There was something about the approach that didn't give them a certain inner strength. And so, you know, you know, you have to look over the course of a lifetime. Think about the best people that you know, the people who are the most resilient, the happiest, that do the most meaningful work, that kind of mine their relationships or value, that the people that you admire that seem wise, or people like in history that are like that. They're very eclectic in terms of how they were raised, in terms of what kind of education they had. Like Frederick Douglass, one of my favorite people in history, was a slave who, he's one of the great autodidacts of history. He got a kind of anti-education and had to educate himself and became one of the great humanists of all time and had a great life, I think. It's easy to both understate and overstate the importance of education and education methodology. I mean, the way I hold it vaguely, roughly, informally is we want to be systematically bringing out the Frederick Douglass in every child. We want to be systematically bringing out the greatness in every child. We don't want to leave it to chance. We don't want to leave it to the exceptional few. We don't want to, um, we want to kind of make it easy for children to become their best selves. And there's all sorts of ways that we make it harder for them to become their best selves. There's no question that methodology matters. To put a question to you, Matt, touching on something that Ray mentioned about how we seem to be ignorant in the field of education, a lot of people anyway. Why is that? Why, as a society, on a societal level, are we as ignorant as we are in the field of education? Since we've been educating children formally for hundreds of years and informally even longer, why do so many schools, do so many people seem to be struggling with how best to educate children when we seem to have so much history of doing it? I mean, the kind of pat answer is like being bad at something is the default until you've achieved knowledge in that area. Like it probably seemed to the alchemists of the 16th century, like they could do a lot with the materials that they had and the recipes that they circulated across the world and through time. And, but they didn't have chemistry and they didn't have a conception of modern scientific chemistry. And that, that was a real achievement. And you could say, why weren't they better at it? Why didn't they have chemistry? They've been doing, they've, we've been cooking for 10,000 years, applying heat to things and making them change. And you're doing it in more systematic ways to make materials and codifying our observations. There's a lot that we were doing that was the kind of nascent version of chemistry, but we still didn't have chemistry. This is, I mean, part of what the 20th century does, and I think Maria Montessori is at the forefront of this, is it brings an enlightenment scientific sensitivity and rigor to the question of education that has only been there imperfectly and in bits and pieces. 
And that takes a while to disseminate and to internalize and to turn into a practice and to apply to different kinds, different times and different places and different children. Um, it's a massive achievement, and I think it's difficult work. The 20th century is really where psychology emerges as a discipline, and there's a lot of ways in which education is applied psychology. So it kind of has to follow that. Like, is that at play as well? I mean, Montessori was definitely part of this wave of early psychologists of Freud and the early developmentalists like Piaget that you already mentioned, Ray, and then figures that are really only studied in the history of psychology um, and the history of psychological biology. I think that that probably is part of it. It's hard to, um, there's a few great books on, not as many as there should be, but um, if you want to kind of learn more about the history of education, specifically Montessori education, there's this book called From Locke to Montessori that I think was published in 1915, so very early in Montessori's career and tenure. And it traces some of the antecedents of Montessori's ideas and other Enlightenment figures. And you can see, I mean, this isn't the author's conclusion, but I think you can see how the seeds of these really important ideas, how freedom is important in education, how motivation is important, how you have to build that into your educational system. They were there, people were thinking about them, but nobody was like getting into a classroom with children and young children and really systematizing it and working it out. Montessori had this kind of friendly critique of Rousseau, who wrote a lot about education of Emile particularly his novel about education. She's like, yeah, like he was taking education seriously, but it's a fantasy. It's a novel. Like, where's the work? Where's the people who are like kind of getting in there and doing it with children, which speaks to this psychological scientific perspective. So I think that that's part of it. But I also think, I mean, my view is that Montessori is a genius and it's hard to know when, when the genius is going to emerge. And like, what, what if we didn't have Newton until a hundred years after Newton or Darwin? Or um, I think that Montessori in, in a certain way came very late with respect to the Enlightenment, thinking about education. And that's part of why it feels so stunted is that some of the people, Montessori and others, who really helped us codify our thinking on this were 20th century figures. To you, Ray, and I imagine this is something that you were probably considering when you were founding Higher Ground Education, and perhaps something you're still investigating now, but if we were to steel man it, what would you say is the greatest weakness of a classical Montessori education, or perhaps when you were thinking about founding Higher Ground, and how are you addressing or adapting for this weakness in your network of schools? Yeah, I, I you know, I started out as a classical great books educator, Mortimer Adler, and you know, I loved St. John's University, and so you know, I, I kind of came to Montessori re- reluctantly because I was actually very skeptical of progressive education. I think the weakness is that in the elementary program and beyond that the kind of genius we see in the three to six program, which by the way, a lot of classical educators really respect because the rigor and the structure, you know, including some of the um, schools that you mentioned, I think that that it's not fully flowered. And in a sense, to the extent that there's a false alternative that Montessori transcends at the early ages, I think at the older ages, it ends up defaulting back to one side of that false alternative. You know, it ends up becoming much more progressive, by which I mean, like, much more in favor of, like, agency as an alternative to knowledge, right, to, to skill development as against as a kind of something that is a f- way of acquiring knowledge and developing skills. I think that, I mean, that's the kind of pedagogical issue. Kind of in terms of the movement and the growth of Montessori, I think that the fact that the training centers and the kind of development of the skill happens kind of in the shadow world outside of kind of academia and the normal kind of social channels, 
you know, has presented a real problem because Montessori is like poetry. It's like, do it well or don't do it because it falls on its face when you do it poorly, right? Like, and it's in a sense worse. But in order to do it well, you have to develop a really different type of educator who is oriented in a different way. And and from the outset, that was really, you know, has been our focus and why we have our own kind of accredited training center. I think that a lot of, uh, I mean, just going back to the conversation and some like, you know, some of the, like the Michaela school or take, take Marva Collins, a lot of pe- these people are heroes of mine because I think that in a sense, within a certain domain, this is a piece of the puzzle that they're pushing, but a kind of challenge in education, especially in a world where you're told to be laser focused and do one thing well, you know, especially as an entrepreneur is that it is a complicated, complex, holistic system. And so for us, like it's getting curriculum and pedagogy right, getting culture right, getting training right, getting real estate right, right, getting whole school management right, because you're talking about taking people's kids and potentially their money if you're a private school, and you're talking about a lot of adult and children's bodies in one tightly confined space. And so figuring out how to manage that, like you really have to, uh, getting assessment right, you have to kind of look at all of these and how they relate to each other and do it full stack, you know. And so I think another kind of vulnerability is, no one in education, including in Montessori education, has really approached the problem, I think, in that type of systematic way. As we begin to bring our chat to a close, I want to touch on something you just said, Ray, which is that Montessori education can fall on its face when you do it poorly, and it can, in fact, be worse than a traditional education. So you mentioned something right at the start of our conversation Basically that the U.S. Patent Board, you didn't say it specifically like this, but I was I looked this up as I was preparing for our chat. The U.S. Patent Board ruled that the term Montessori has a generic or descriptive significance, right? So in the United States and elsewhere, Montessori, quote unquote, can be used without giving any guarantee of how closely or if at all a program or school applies Maria Montessori's pedagogy. So for parents, either current or future, parents who are potentially interested in learning more about the Montessori method and potential schools for their children where a higher ground school uh, may not be available, how would they go about navigating the many different brands or flavors, I guess you could say, of Montessori that is available? And how can they know which interpretation is right for their children and which might fall on its face, let's say? I think the question... um if you're looking particularly for a school, in some ways is easier. You know, if you're convinced you've read up enough on Montessori and you're looking for a Montessori school, I think we have something on, you know, our Guidepost Montessori um, website. But, you know, this is work that we want to do. But it's like there are markers, you know, are the kindergarten age children mixed in with the three and four year olds or are they separated out is often very telling. You know, is there the right complement of materials? Is there a three-hour uninterrupted work period every morning, or are they breaking it up to do yoga and dance and things like that? Like, so there are pretty established, I think, signs and markers of kind of is it an authentic, high fidelity Montessori environment, and actually some also some academic papers. But I think if you step, you know, one step back and you say like, how do you kind of um, navigate the whole issue of parenting and education? We think there's a vacuum and we do definitely see it as a core of our function to kind of fill that vacuum and really present the choices. Like, you know, what are the four theories of sleep training? How should you think about 
nursing, you know, and is, is everything out there about breastfeeding, right? And so like, there's this whole kind of starting from the outside, you know, people talk about don't like debate religion and politics, like they should add parenting to that, because it is one of these things that people feel very strongly. It's the last great vestige of the amateur. So everyone has an opinion, and it's hard to kind of be evidence based. I come back to in an educational environment, really those two markers, like, is it a culture of work? And is it a culture of knowledge? And then from a kind of broader parenting sense, like it's actually much more important and more fundamental to kind of being a good parent to observe your own child, really observe, really try to size them up and understand what's going on and patiently and exactingly observe. Then it is just to kind of dive into theories and read. You have to do that, but it's really, you know, Montessori has this, there's this great story. And I don't know if it's true that on her deathbed, she said, she kind of pointed outwards and said, like, there is no Montessori. You know, I keep pointing at the child and you keep looking at my finger, right? Um, if there's only the human child in development, right? And I think that is the right orientation that, you, you know, what we're trying to get at is what is the nature of the particular child and, and what do they need? You know, we can recommend books and things like that. I do think there's better resources and worse resources, but, you know, having that orientation to be an observer as a parent, I think that's the watchword for us, right? Like observe. To kind of leapfrog off what you just said, are there, you know, not to put both of you on the spot, but for a parent interested in kind of pursuing this and learning more, are there a couple of books or resources off the top of your head? And I, you know, I will obviously I'll put the link to uh, the Higher Ground Education website in the show notes, along with some other resources to materials that I've referenced in our talk today. But in addition to that, were there books that, and they don't necessarily even have to be directly about Montessori, but books that have inspired you, whether they're Montessori related or not, that could be useful for parents who are looking to start thinking about how they will have their young children who might not yet be school age, how they might have their children educated when they are old enough to begin their education. I've got a couple off the top of my head. So one, yeah. one is um, if you're going to read something by Maria Montessori and you haven't started, the two natural places to start are her 1946 London lectures, which is the last training course that she delivered. It's Montessori can be a little bit difficult to read. This is really readable. It was transcribed. It's kind of more natural speech. It's broken up into good chunks. It presents her mature views because it was in 1946 towards the end of her life. And then her main work, The Montessori Method, or The Discovery of the Child, when it was reprinted. Um, but The Montessori Method is a great book to read. It's very anecdotal. She talks about, she kind of walks you through how she thinks about the observational evidence, why they led her to the conclusions that they led her to, and about children, and how that applies to pedagogy. It, it's very approachable. For books by others, um, Simone Davies has a good book, probably more than one book, but the book that I'm thinking of is The Montessori Toddler, about how to think about Montessori for younger children. I think she says a fair bit in that book that's relevant to infants as well. And then if you are on the more academic side, I often get asked by parents, like, what's the research on Montessori? Um, how do you know that it's true? How does it integrate with science? There's this great book by Angeline Lillard called Montessori, The Science Behind the Genius. This is this preeminent psychologist, developmental psychologist, who really goes through the evidence both directly and indirectly for and against Montessori and lays it out in a pretty presentable form. So that's Montessori, the science behind the genius. I would also recommend Haim Gannat and kind of the whole um, network of thinkers. You know, I think the most common book, probably well known, is like How to Talk So Kids Will Listen. Um, something like that, how to, how to Talk So Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. But Haim Gannat is the thinker that set up this whole movement of really being an observer and being a listener. And, and I think it's, you know, accessible to parents. Um, and then we, 
through our Guidepost Montessori brand, we hope in a couple of quarters to launch something called Guidepost Family Framework, which is really going to be this resource for parenting for independence. And it's really about empowering the parent so that based on their values and their approach, you know, in the broad category of optimizing for independence, moral, intellectual, physical, economic independence of their child, like this is a how-to methodology including what you should read. And we have a couple of Facebook groups up that are free to join. Just look up Guidepost Family Framework on Facebook and you can just pop in any question there and there's parents answering each other. And, and I think that can get more targeted recommendations on things like how to think about sibling rivalries or how to think about sleep training, whatever's coming up for a particular parent. You know, we didn't talk a lot about this, but you know, there is a sense in which kind of the modern parent doesn't have that village to, to support them in, in kind of raising their child. And we're thinking a lot about like, what does it mean to, you know, to be that village and, and to create a kind of 2.0 version of the, that support network that historically even parents have had. Yeah, there seems to be quite a lot of atomization in society, uh, something that I've spoken about with past guests on the show and, and something I think that our society really needs to grapple with. And perhaps in a, a future episode, I can talk with both of you again about how we can solve that both on an educational front and kind of also just in terms of the neighborhoods and the communities that we form and how often forming those communities can feel so hard. I mean, I, I commented to one of my past guests, John Wood Jr., who is part of the Braver Angels Foundation, about how most people my age don't know a single neighbor. They don't know anyone in their apartment complex by name. They don't know the people down the street who are living in houses, you know, 50 feet away. And how do we tackle that issue? Because I feel like that is a, a fundamental part of raising children and raising a community. And it seems to be something that it's at the forefront of my mind uh, and seems to be a problem that we as a society need to tackle. And it's heartening to hear that you're doing that work at Higher Ground Education. Yeah, and I would love to do that. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tailwinds as well as headwinds um, in the culture. If you think about things like the Amazon effect, you know, the change of retail and you have at least 800 of the 1200 large malls in the United States have to be repurposed. And there could be this kind of resurgence of community hubs. I think I agree with you. People are craving it. We think a lot about community as a pillar. And yet, you know, there is atomization. You know, one of our premises is like the modern working professional who has to travel for work should be able to take their young kids with them to any major metropolis. My six-year-old and four-year-old have been to 20 cities because when my wife and I travel, we just grab one of them and take them with us and they just go to school there and we try to make it really seamless and allow for that network effect. I think at the level of culture and pedagogy and then also, but at the level of economic changes, you know, changes in retail, changes in travel patterns, obviously now you know, affected by COVID. Uh, fascinating topic and would love to dive into that anytime. Yeah, there, there was a lot of research and potential questions I had to leave on the floor, lest this be a six-hour show, because there's, there's just a lot of richness there between the, the materials you passed along and the reading that I did. It was a difficult to focus on exactly what we would talk about today, because there really is so many different angles that you can attack this problem and so many different ways to have this conversation. So I appreciate the time both of you have granted me today to at least look at part of the puzzle. But to take us to the end of the show, I want to ask both of you a question that I ask all of our guests. Oftentimes for me, when I'm really drilling down on something, whether it's uh, prepping for a conversation like this one, or I'm really busy with work, or I get tunnel vision on a, a certain political topic that I'm reading a lot about, I can lose sight of other things, other people, other groups in my life, either ones that I personally know, or just 
you know, in the abstract, right? Other political parties, other groups of people, other organizations. So my question is, we're limited in all sorts of ways as individuals, right? In our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person, sounds to me like you are both intensely caring people, can't be thinking of every other person, every other group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There are only so many hours in the day. So to each of you, gentlemen, is there someone, a group of people or an organization in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I knew you were going to ask this question because I was in your podcast, so I thought about it. I don't know if this counts as a group of people or not, but I think that there, there's multiple ways in which I think that the answer is children. Kind of having, and everybody loves kids. Like I walk up, I have an eight month old daughter. I live in New York, and I've been walking around um, New York, pushing her around in the stroller, and everybody smiles at her, and it's it's one of these really delightful experiences to have. But I mean, really seeing where they're coming from, what they can and can't understand. I mean, maybe this is a topic for a future conversation as well. But a lot of illiberalism, a lot of incapacity to think about certain topics or to empathize with others stems from things that children absorb from the adults around them in childhood, even from really good intentions and really respecting a child's context, what they do and don't understand, what they're ready to understand and what they're ready to not understand, where they're at in their development of their identity. There's no limit to the dividends that get paid by empathizing with children. For me, um, what really comes to mind, I think, is the educational establishment. I'm a critic of that establishment. You know, I've gone to conferences and, you know, we talked about mixed-age classrooms and especially with respect to educational advocacy, you know, I've really said that anyone that's in advocacy that is not pushing for mixed ages, you know, is playing a game and not really serious because the, the data here is so, you know, incontrovertible. As someone that a critic and, and kind of in, in this often poking holes in the kind of the way things have been done, I have to remind myself, and I do remind myself that that you know teachers, teachers unions, like you know, they're full of good people that love kids that are just trying to do their best. And kind of my um, you know my place that I return to to reorient myself is the conviction that it is ideas that move the world, and that people in grips are are in grips of ideas and intellectual frameworks, and that if you don't really kind of take that view, you end up becoming you know, cynical, you end up, you know, if you believe that hypocrisy, you know, is a force in human history, right? Or like, the things that drive us one direction or another are not really at the level of ideas, but at the level of personalities, you do, I think, end up seeing the person that's opposing you as, in a sense, the enemy or as the person that you have to topple. Whereas if you go to kind of like, you know, what ideas explain this? Like, what intellectual errors explain this view? You just end up having a charitable and much more empathetic view of people who you disagree with just because like, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. And I think that, you know, not that everyone is good intention, but most people are. And I have to do some work and I try, try to do so regularly to remind myself of that because I've just such skepticism of, of the current conventional educational system, public and private, and, and the ways in which it's, uh, I think, not meeting the needs of children, you know, that, that I think um, deserve a lot better. Matt? Ray, it's a cliche to say children are our future, but often cliches become cliches because 
they contain truth. And so I appreciate not only the time that both of you have spent with me today in this conversation, but I appreciate the work that you're doing in helping shape the future leaders and allowing them the opportunities to grow and learn and become full human beings. So thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you're doing. And it's great. Really fun conversation. Yes, thank you. Yeah.